My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. feel pressured to perform their gender identity counter to how they actually identify in order to gain social acceptance, in order to be able to get hired, in order to be able to participate in general society, is killing people. Not even to touch on the issues that capitalism poses in the first place. We can't even have those conversations yet because we're too focused on will we be alive tomorrow. That's the voice of Riley Nielsen Baker. They and Felix Vandergrift are today's guests on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. Nielsen Baker is a public servant who works on issues related to sexual assault and gender-based violence, and Vandergrift works as a consultant in the environmental sector. Outside of their paid work, both are active with Gender Affirming Care Nova Scotia, a grassroots community-based policy initiative focused on addressing issues of gender-affirming care and of access to healthcare in general for trans, intersex, and gender-diverse people. Gender-affirming care is any healthcare that affirms someone's gender identity through better aligning their body and physical presentation with that identity. This can include interventions like surgeries and hormone replacement therapy, as well as other forms of related care like voice training, hair removal, and supports to learn various kinds of aesthetic practices that can be important to expressing gender. According to Nielsen Baker, gender-affirming care in Nova Scotia is currently, quote, incredibly limited, incredibly gatekept, end quote. The province offers a number of basic gender-affirming surgeries through the public system. However, everything beyond that must be paid for out of pocket. Many trans people have very limited opportunities in the job market because of anti-trans discrimination, so even small financial barriers can be prohibitive. Even among the gender-affirming care that is provided publicly, access is limited by lengthy waiting lists, arbitrary gatekeeping by medical professionals, and intense bureaucracy. Access is further limited because the system pushes people to adhere to very narrow understandings of what it means to be trans, with little recognition that different people need different things to affirm their genders. And some trans people have no interest in fitting themselves into dominant understandings of male and female, or into medicalized stereotypes of transness. Gender-affirming care has repeatedly been demonstrated to be crucial for keeping trans people alive. Nielsen Baker says they have a slogan that they use a great deal within their group, though much more cautiously in public contexts. Quote, trans suicides are a policy choice, end quote. It's well known what needs to be done to reduce trans suicides, and the choice not to do those things is a form of blatant, active disregard for trans people's survival. In late 2020, Nielsen Baker was part of a small leftist organizing group in Nova Scotia and was working on a number of policy proposals for the group aimed as interventions in the then-upcoming provincial election, including one related to gender-affirming care. They were uneasy, however, about the possibility of feeding into the politicization, in a party political sense, of the needs and lives of trans people. Perhaps with an eye to the disturbing trajectories in the U.S. and the U.K., Nielsen Baker said, quote, When we politicize trans lives, trans people lose, end quote. 
So early in 2021, Nielsen Baker decided instead to pursue the work as an independent, grassroots, community-based process. Starting with a handful of participants and some informal consultation, the process grew to include a lively core group, which today includes Vandergrift, extensive consultations with other trans people in the province, and endorsements from more than 50 organizations, including LGBTQ2S plus groups, unions, churches, and professional organizations. The work has involved documenting how things work now in Nova Scotia, how other jurisdictions do things, and what the community wants. And it has resulted in a robust and detailed policy that, if adopted, would dramatically improve gender-affirming care in Nova Scotia. The overarching thrust of the policy is to remove barriers to gender-affirming care and to expand coverage within the public system. Rather than engaging with politicians about gender-affirming care, the group is focused on building support in the general public through a series of town halls and other forms of public engagement, and on working directly with the provincial public service to get these changes integrated into the provincial healthcare system. I speak with Nielsen Baker and Vandergrift about gender-affirming care in general, and about the work of Gender-Affirming Care Nova Scotia. My name is Felix Vandergrift. My pronouns are he, him, or they, them. I've been working a lot in environmental consultation, sustainability. When I came out in 2019, it sort of became really evident that gender affirming care is a big issue in our province. So instead of just continuing to go with it and accept it as is, I decided to get involved and get active with gender affirming care. My name is Riley Nielsen Baker. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. And I'm the author and organizer of Gender Affirming Care Nova Scotia. I'm currently a public servant working in the field of gender-based and sexual assault policy and programming, working on issues of access to justice. I am also a current Master's of Political Science student at Dalhousie University studying Canadian politics with my thesis work focused on the concept of the transgender person in Canadian case law. I have my Master's of Public Administration from Dalhousie University. Gender Affirming Care Nova Scotia is a grassroots community-based policy to address issues not just of gender affirming care, but issues of access to health care and healthcare competency for the health care of members of the trans, intersex, and gender diverse community here in Nova Scotia. We're really focused on removing barriers and adding protections for those who either require gender-affirming care in this province or are just a member of our community and need help accessing health care. We want to make sure that everyone can have access to equitable, responsive health care in this province. In my policy training and policy education, the importance of consultation is always so emphasized because you can't make policy about or for people without including them because they are the ones that are the most impacted by what's happening in these systems. They know where it's failing. They know how to fix a lot of these issues. And really, community-based policy work is just taking that a step further. Not only is the community consulting on the policy, the community is making the policy. We are having 100% control and 100% say in what's happening in this policy and what potentially will happen in the healthcare system here in Nova Scotia. There's this infantilization of a lot of Indigenous communities, Black communities, queer communities that all share this sort of same idea that you don't know what's best for you. So we, the government, are going to make the rules for you. And that is almost the exact experience I had when I came out and started doing this transition was, oh, you don't know what's best for you. 
And, you know, I'm a well-educated person and have lots of experience working in consulting. Like, why can't I decide what's best for me and my health and my body? And there's so many young people out there that are being disenfranchised and marginalized even further, especially if you're not white. What in general terms is gender affirming care? Gender affirming care is any access to health care that affirms your gender identity. A lot of people think that it has to do with just surgeries or just hormone replacement therapy, which is absolutely part of it. But essentially, it's any health care that an individual can access that better aligns their identity, their physical characteristics, their emotional state or well-being to better align with how they identify with their gender identity. People, when you hear the word healthcare, automatically assume, like you said, surgeries and hormones and the like. But there's also programs in other provinces that include things like haircuts and voice training and like sessions for makeup tutorials or how to dress to better suit what gender you are trying to identify as or express. There's lots of publicly funded programs in other parts of the world that help with those aspects of things too. And to me, that's also a part of it that's really important for not only yourself, but existing in the public. And how does gender affirming care work in Nova Scotia at the moment? Currently in Nova Scotia, our gender affirming care is incredibly limited, incredibly gatekept. Kind of like how Felix just mentioned, gender affirming care is not just surgery, it's not just hormones. Here in the province of Nova Scotia, that is all it is. And even then, what we're getting is incredibly limited, not just in what is offered, but who is actually able to offer it. Currently under our process here in Nova Scotia, hormones, they usually do have to pay for out of pocket. The only options that people have that are publicly funded are issues such as the stereotypical surgeries that people associate with transgender, intersex, and non-binary individuals. Even though those things are covered, that is a very incredibly limited list that only covers the bare minimum, if even that. It doesn't cover issues like Felix mentioned, like voice training, hair removal, Adam's apple shaving. It really doesn't cover anything, realistically. And even in that, surgeries and procedures such as breast augmentation are further limited. If you're a trans feminine individual who would like to access top surgery for breast augmentation, frequently, if you have the breast development equivalent of a 14-year-old girl, so a child, you actually don't qualify for publicly funded breast augmentation. If you do want it, you'll have to pay out of pocket. And that's really what we're talking about here at first. We're talking about making a system that actually covers the transitionary needs from a healthcare perspective. That's only maybe at most 50% of these processes when it comes to trans healthcare. On top of that, if you are a member of our community in this province, you are unable to probably find a healthcare practitioner who actually has, you know, ever encountered a transgender, intersex, or gender diverse individual, let alone knows how to practice healthcare on a member of our community. And that's a huge problem. Here in this province, we have maybe 10 people who practice healthcare specific to the trans community, and the majority of them are located within Halifax Regional Municipality. People are having to wait on average four to five years for top surgery. And I have met people who have waited 11 years for top surgery, which is absolutely ridiculous and unacceptable. 
On top of that, many procedures are further limited into you can only access this procedure if you access a different procedure, regardless of whether or not you need it, which has people accessing transitionary care for their bodies that they don't need. It's forcing trans folks and non-binary, particularly or gender non-conforming folks into these awful boxes of binary care that many trans folks don't identify with. If I don't identify as masculine enough, I won't receive the care that I need. Or if I don't say, yes, I'm transitioning female to male, I won't receive the care that I need. When in actual fact, I consider myself more of a gender diverse person who kind of fluctuates in between those things, but explaining that to a healthcare provider raises eyebrows, and then I might not get the care that I need. On top of that, we talk about a lot of these really awful limiting factors in gatekeeping. One of the reasons that I actually became active in this sphere myself is because I'm a power lifter. That is one of the things that gives me lots of gender euphoria. And in that, I am what most people would consider the obese category. And so they wouldn't even book my consultation for a top surgery because my BMI was too high. So there's all kinds of these little nuanced things. But then there's also these really glaring issues like, no, you can't access that unless you're truly transitioning to female or you can't access breast augmentation if you don't have breast development of a 12 year old or you're non-binary, AFAB. Uh, And that stands for assigned female at birth. You don't count for top surgery or chest masculinization surgery because you fall in this weird in between we don't understand. What Felix is touching on is something that's colloquially known in our community as the trans test. And I have never met a single person who feels that they have not either directly gone through the trans test or indirectly gone through the trans test. And that refers to the idea that we have to prove ourselves to our assessors that we are trans enough in their eyes. And that means fitting into boxes of high mask and high feminine categories. The idea that you have to be the perfect trans in order to access these care. A huge problem here is that on top of all of that, practically all of the people who are doing these assessments aren't even a member of our community. Most of them aren't even in the larger queer umbrella, which places huge barriers to prove to people who have no conceptualization about our experience that we are in fact quote, trans enough to access care and the idea that there is one idea or even two ideas of acceptable transness is ridiculously limiting to all of us. Like, it's just so ridiculous. Like, it's so many steps. It's so many hoops. Like, I work in bureaucracy for a living from the get-go, even from the name change process. This has been an absolutely bureaucratic nightmare of paperwork, of specialists, of checklists, not to mention the cost. So like when we had this sort of minute of crisis where the only surgeon in the province who was doing surgeries said he's retiring, my gut sank because I knew we were going to lose people from suicide, from addiction, from violence, from whatever, because that's their last hope. Because this process is so burdensome and so onerous and the policy is so outdated, you already have people that are strapped to mental capacity. That's just so heartbreaking, but it's also so preventable. We have had this slogan that we've used at Gender Affirming Care since the start that we don't really talk about publicly because it makes people very uncomfortable. 
that trans suicides are a policy choice. This is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a lack of political will and doing nothing is absolutely a choice. And it is a choice that has to be actively made. By making this policy choice and the policy choices that we have made historically, we are saying that trans suicides are acceptable, that they're not worth it to us to do anything about. I also want to touch on a little bit as well that to access gender affirming care in this province, especially procedures such as surgery, you are required to get at least two recommendations, one from a psychiatrist and one from a psychologist. The idea of this process is a holdover from a history of trans medicalization and pathologization. The idea that trans people are mentally ill, that we are sick, that we need to be protected from ourselves. No, we don't. And that fact that we still require a psychological assessment to determine our readiness to access gender-affirming care that is completely necessary for us is unacceptable. There's also the issue of the financial costs of these for trans people. Trans people are more likely to live below the poverty line. They are less likely to have upward economic mobility. They are more likely to be unemployed homeless and in debt. They are less likely to have economic opportunities, educational opportunities. And this debt comes from trying to privately fund these surgeries and procedures themselves. The reason that we are less likely to have these economic and social opportunities is because of transphobia. We need to work to address that. The fact that people feel pressured to perform their gender identity counter to how they actually identify in order to gain social acceptance, in order to be able to get hired in order to be able to participate in general society is killing people and it's hurting people, forcing people into these dangerous economic situations, not even to touch on the issues that capitalism poses in the first place, because what we're talking about is existence in the current system. We can't even have those conversations yet because we're too focused on will we be alive tomorrow. How did gender-affirming care Nova Scotia, meaning the grassroots community-based policy process that you're a part of, get started? Around the end of 2020, I was a part of a very small political left-leaning organization. And I was their parliamentarian and policy person. And I was working on a couple of policy proposals to deal with a housing crisis, as well as gender-affirming care. They were basically a handful of policy ideas that the organization was planning to take towards the next provincial election, which was the one that occurred in 2021, trying to get them on parties' platforms so that they become political issues, that we can make them electoral issues, and we could see some change. And after a few months, around February 2021, I looked at the work I'd done and realized this is more than a policy proposal. It, it is actually some incredibly good policy work. And I made the decision to take it out of this political organizing group as to not further politicize trans lives, because when we politicize trans lives, trans people lose. And to try to make something more grassroots, an independent, community-based grassroots policy movement. And it just kind of grew from there. We started by collecting some local supporters, consulting with a handful of trans people that I either knew and really expanded out that through web networking and outreach. By the time we got to a year later, we had the endorsement of about 50 organizations, including huge organizations like Doctors Nova Scotia, like EGAL, like Nova Scotia Rainbow Action Project, like Wisdom to Action. 
today. We are doing media interviews like this one. We're actively consulting with government, with the Department of Health and Wellness. We're working with our partner organizations to put on events such as our town halls, to talk to people both in our community and just in the general public about what issues we're facing as a trans community and what can actively be done. So it started the same way that any policy does with an idea. I knew that our system of gender affirming care was broken as a trans non-binary person. I see where these problems are. I'm going to start investigating, looking through health policy documents that the province currently operates, looking and talking to members of the community that weren't officially consultations at the time, but just having conversations of where people have seen system fail. And then it was announced in March 2021 that the Yukon was going to completely overhaul their gender-affirming care system. So after that, we basically took that work that they did in the Yukon and said, let's see how we can take this a step further. It was a lot of reading and research, jurisdictional scans to kind of see where we are now and where realistically the community thinks we should go. Really centering the transgender diverse and intersex experience in everything we did. And since then, we've read however many academic works and medical works, consulted with members of the healthcare community, consulted with hundreds of members of the trans community, both in Nova Scotia and in Canada at large. And it came about the same way that really any policy in government would, except that this is completely community-led and community-focused. What are some of the key elements of the policy that you're bringing forward? We're talking about one, removing barriers, and two, expanding coverage. For removing barriers, we're talking about removing those letters from psychiatrists and psychologists. It also talks about making gender-affirming care, treating it all as medically necessary. We treat it as medically necessary and not as boutique care, not as cosmetic care. Then we actually focus on what is happening in the trans experience, in the trans community, and making sure that people get the care that they need in a timely manner and focusing on the fact that it is life-saving care. Making sure that we're focusing instead on making sure that someone is quote-unquote trans enough to access care. We're instead focusing on what they need and making educated decisions about their life and their choices. It focuses on making the person the primary assessor. And this goes to address, one, making sure that people aren't getting medically unnecessary procedures just to check a box for the system. But also, if we center the individual as the decision maker for their care, we can help address some issues of medical racism where we know that people of color, especially Black people, especially Indigenous people, are less likely to get approved for medically necessary care than their white counterparts. By instead of focusing on the opinions of their healthcare provider, who is very much potentially exposed to severe medical bias, we instead focus on the individual's care needs, and they are making their decisions, and the medical bias is less likely to play a role. We also focus on the importance of euphoria. Now, everyone knows about the trans experience and dysphoria, the suffering that we experience because how we exist socially and how we are viewed socially, either because of our bodies or because of other issues of socialization that occur in the trans person's experience. We all know about that. But dysphoria is not the only determinant of the necessity of gender-affirming care. It's not even necessarily the strongest determinant. What is, is euphoria, which is the satisfaction, the happiness, the security that one gets from having 
their social experience and their physical experience validated and reflected in their daily life and in the healthcare that they receive. So by centering euphoria, one, we stop talking about trans suffering and we start emphasizing trans happiness. We start using medical determinants that are actually reflective of what's going on and properly providing care and allocating care where it's actually needed. We vastly expand what is actually covered under this policy. We remove barriers such as BMI and the Tanner scale that limits people's ability to access gender-affirming care unnecessarily. We cover issues such as body contouring, face feminization and masculinization surgery, some aspects of germ cell preservation, hair removal and hair transplant. And we really focus on providing more holistic care not just those stereotypical top and bottom surgeries, but the whole of healthcare that people need in order to live their best life and experience the most euphoria. And finally, the last piece that we cover is education to actually have healthcare providers in this province that are able to actually treat a trans person, whether that is in their gender affirming care or in their general health. One of the things mm-hmm. I really appreciated when I was reading the policy for the first time was that dispelling of myths there's so many myths around trans healthcare, and there's so many untruths within the healthcare system currently and within the policy currently that this policy that Riley has worked to develop and is trying to get implemented does a great job of dispelling. What are you doing to try and get this policy adopted by the Nova Scotia government? We're purposely not really engaging with politicians. Politicians have a tendency to politicize, and that is the opposite of what we want in this process is to further politicize trans lives. We have instead been focusing on the public service and the general public, because realistically, that's who is important in these conversations. We want to make sure that we are talking to the general public, that they are understanding these issues, and that the public service is engaged because a lot of people don't appreciate that a lot of changes that occur in government come from the bureaucracy, come from the public service. So we want to focus on making sure that people in the public service and people in the general public feel comfortable having these conversations and they feel empowered. With that too, the media reception has been incredibly positive. The general public reception has been more positive than I could ever ask for or hope for. We recently held our first town hall on May 11th and the outpouring from the community of people who are just like, I have no knowledge about the trans experience or trans healthcare or gender affirming care, but I just want to come and learn and have these conversations. It's the majority of the people who have been engaging with us lately. They don't know, but they want to know and they want to know how they can do better. It's very incredible to see and incredible to experience both as a trans person and as a policy author. We are currently doing five weeks of raffle giveaways for the entire month of June. And people who are interested in learning about those can visit our website, gacns.ca, and go to support GACNS on our website to find out more. We are also currently selling our GACNS t-shirts. For the month of July, which is Pride Month here in Halifax, we will be at Halifax Pride promoting GACNS, including participating and being realistically the center of Halifax Pride's annual march and vigil. We're also in the process of announcing a series of town halls. We are a non-registered nonprofit, so one of the things that we're trying to do with the fundraising, we're not raising funds for ourselves. 
all of the funds are going to be put back into doing more outreach and awareness as much as humanly possible to allow us to do more town halls in more rural areas. You have been listening to my interview with Riley Nielsen-Baker and Felix Vandergrift of Gender Affirming Care, Nova Scotia. To learn more about their work, go to gacns.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.